Well, how's that uh, Christmas shopping coming? Yeah? You finding the things that you need to be able to give to whomever? You were, you were saying, Scott, I was just having a very sweet moment, and you just kind of messed with that whole thing. No, I'm not ready. No, I don't have it all done. Uh, well, that's okay. You still have a little time. But uh, the exhortation that we're considering these days is that we want to make sure that when we give the gifts, we want to give the good gifts. I told you last week, uh, in my childhood, uh, I tried to be respectful and appreciative, but, you know, when I opened that package and there's a pair of socks in there, it just took all I had to say, oh, thank you. I was looking for the good stuff. And that's what we're focusing on these next uh, couple of Sundays is giving the good stuff at Christmas. And particularly today, what do you do for the person that has everything? You know anybody like that? Are you shopping for anybody like that? I did a little research. In case you're actually looking for gifts for someone that has everything, uh, here's what some of the uh, top ten lists are showing us around the uh, world and around the country. Give a hot air balloon ride. Maybe not today. A little chilly today. But you can give them the gift certificate that will let them up into the sky and take in the panoramic views of the beautiful northwest. They'll go 500 to 1,000 feet up in the air and they'll just go as the wind shoves them along for 5 to 10 miles and it'll take you about a couple hundred bucks to do that. Or you can make a contribution in their name to Heifer International. You go, what is that? Well, there's a lot of third world countries whose lives are significantly improved if they can uh, lay their hands on certain kinds of livestock. No kidding. So uh, you can make contributions to help them get a cow or a goat or a sheep, and they get training about what to do with those animals so that they can begin to uh, make it contribute to their level of living, their, their uh, quality of life. Very worthwhile uh, group of uh, people. Or you can uh, purchase the 2008 White House Christmas ornament. You know, what in the world is that? Every year, no kidding, the White House Historical Association has a commemorative Christmas ornament. It costs you about 20 bucks, and every year it has a focus on one of our, uh, one particular president from our history. This year it's Benjamin Harrison, so I know some of you are going to be looking for that right now. The 23rd president, they give you all this history about who Harrison was and what he did and uh, some of the little features that are part of the ornament relate to his life and his presidency and the proceeds from you purchasing those ornaments goes for the preservation of the White House, literally, as well as some educational things that happen around letting uh, kids know what the White House is all about. You go, keep going, I'm not quite there. All right, well, how about skydiving? You don't want to float along in a balloon, then jump out of a plane. You can go several thousand feet up in the air after a brief lesson. You can go in tandem with a professional guy, and then you can just hurl your life right out the side of a plane and free fall for some uh, seconds or minutes, and uh, depending on how high you went, and then pull that chute and have a great time. Again, you can probably get in on that for a couple of hundred bucks. You go, please, show me something else. Okay, well... A lot of you are familiar with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and that they seek to bring some kind of uh, increase in the quality of life for a child that is in some kind of medical dire situation that's uh, 
uh, more than likely going to lead to death. And you've heard a lot of their stories and their worthwhile organization that might make a difference for some child in his or her family. Now, having said all that, there is one for whom I'm advocating that we give a gift this year that is more important than the rest. And that is God. That we give God gifts at Christmas. And you talk about somebody that has everything. He's got it all. He owns everything. So what do you give to God who has everything? You go, well, you know what? I'm not even sure he was on my list. Well, he needs to be on your list because that's what Christmas is all about. We're told in Matthew 2.11... That when the wise men from the east found the Christ child, they fell down, they worshipped him, they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts. And you remember that that was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And from that day to this, we've done gift giving at Christmas, only sometimes we forget God. What are you giving God for Christmas? The person who has everything. He won't be too impressed with the list that I gave you a moment ago. And so, I'm suggesting a different list from which you can give God the good stuff, not a pair of socks. Namely, you can give Him a growing life. And that's what we talked about last week, if you missed that. Might want to uh, pick up that CD. What's that look like to give God the gift of my growing life? We can give Him a forgiving life where we become excellent in forgiveness. We can give Him a peacemaking life. We can give Him a trusting life. We can give Him a life of integrity. And if you notice the common piece to all those gifts, it's your life. And so what we're talking about giving to God at Christmas time is my life, your life, but not just any old pair of socks life. We're talking about an excellent life, an extraordinary life, a well-lived life. And you go, how do you get one of those? Great question. You get one of those from God. You see, He gives you a life. Because you ain't got one. You go, well, I, I think I do. I think I'm kind of getting along all right with it. No, it's a reasonable facsimile. It's an imitation of real life. Real life only comes from Him. And He gives that to you. He gives that to me as a gift. Merry Christmas. It's in the person of Christ. And when you become a Christ follower, He brings upon you a life that is beyond yourself. It's a new life. It's an exchanged life. You exchange the old one for a new one. And then you do something with that life He has given you, like grow it, become excellent and forgiving and making peace, learn how to trust Him well, have a life of integrity. You do something with it, and then you give it back to Him. Now, that's kind of what happened with a lot of us when we were children, was it not? 
You know, it comes Christmas time. You're supposed to give mom and dad a gift, except you don't have any money. You don't have any way to give mom and dad a gift. So mom and dad give you money so you can go get them a gift. Right? This is exactly what we're talking about. God gives you a life because you ain't got one. And then you do something with what He gives you. Then you give it back to Him. And specifically today, we're talking about giving back to Him a forgiving, peacemaking life. A forgiving, peacemaking life. And we're going to unpack that and see what that's all about by looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have the Gospel of, if you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Matthew and we'll begin in chapter 5. But we're going to be moving around in Matthew a little bit, so you want to make sure your fingers are ready to turn a couple of pages. So the first thing that I want to say to you about this giving God a forgiving, peacemaking kind of life is that that is characteristic of all of God's children. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, we are at the beginning of what is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Best sermon ever. Worth your spending a lot of time in reading and meditating and praying over. And, of course, it launches out, it begins with what we refer to as the Beatitudes. And so, beginning in verse 3, he tells us, blessed if you're poor. And you go, come back, say what? Then he says, blessed if you mourn. And you go, I'm sorry, I'm not quite getting it. Blessed if you are meek or you, you learn to accept the ways and the workings of God in your life. You go, I, I'm really lost. Blessed are you if you make for peace. And on and on it goes. You say, man, that, that sounds a little bit out of this world. That just doesn't quite make sense. That's because it's out of this world and it only makes sense if you are already a child of God. Because if you are not a child of God, there's nothing blessed about being poor. But if you are a child of God, then he says you are blessed when you understand how poverty-stricken you are without me. Everybody is bankrupt and in poverty if they don't have me. And if you get that, you're blessed. And this is a hard, fallen, broken world. You're going to have grief. You're going to have sorrow. And if you learn how to mourn that... Turn to me with your grief. I'll comfort you. You'll be blessed in your mourning. And on it goes. And so the point that I'm raising here, and we're just highlighting for you, verse 9, where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, we're not saying you really get after the work of making for peace and you'll become a son of God. Rather, it's because you're a son of God. It's because you're a daughter of God that He has done something in you that compels you, that stirs you, that inspires you, that prompts you to make for peace. And by that, others will see you're a son or daughter of God and call you so. You follow me? So you go, uh, making peace. With whom? Well, make peace with yourself. You know, some of you don't like yourself too much. Right? And so God works in us in, in such a way that we actually begin to love and like ourselves. 
And the same with someone else with whom we have relationship. Anybody have a challenge? You don't have to hold up your hand. Anybody have a challenge with a boss? Co-worker? Yeah, don't show me. I don't want to see. <laughs> Somebody that works for me just held up their hand. I don't want to know. Oh, let's pray. How about a family member? Child, a parent, a spouse? Have a hard time with some neighbor, some other relative? See, he's, he will be at work in us to make for peace in those relationships and in those with, with whom uh, you are just in proximity to their relationship cha- challenges. And so maybe it's a couple of work colleagues, maybe it's a couple of other family members, maybe it's a couple of people in your neighborhood or whatever, but you have just been in proximity to what's going on in their lives and he stirs and prompts you to stick your nose in their business in a loving kind of way to make for peace. Maybe it has to do with someone that's in proximity to you that needs peace with God because they're still at odds with God. Blessed are you, my sons and my daughters, who are already being peacemakers. It's by that uh, that others will see that you're my son or my daughter. In other words, friends... You don't do this to become a child of God. You do this because you are a child of God. It's because you've already received eternal life. You go, how does somebody really know if they've received eternal life? You know because what's true in these Beatitudes becomes true for you. And so you begin to understand, you begin to experience this blessed way of living that is paradoxical and upside down to this world. And if that becomes your reality, if that's becoming your experience, if that's becoming the way that you're knowing life, then you're knowing God. That's the only way you can have that kind of life is by knowing Him. And that happens in your following of Christ. Let me say in the second place, not only is our state of being of uh, being God's child, one that is a blessed state. But the work of being God's child is then expressed in this peacemaking thing. And you say, what's that look like? Look with me in that same fifth chapter, but verse 43. Jesus continues, he said, you've heard that it was said, you love your neighbor, you hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love your enemies and pray for them. Love those who give you a hard time and are oppressing you and irritating you and take extra grace to be around and pray for them. And so I'm really, truly, I'm asking you to bring to your mind the face the name, the scenario of the people that are involved in difficulty with you relationally. Who's on your mind? Who's in sight of your thoughts right now? Jesus said, okay, you're my son, you're my daughter. Here's what it looks like to roll up your sleeves and begin to do the work of peacemaking. Love them. You go, well, what does loving people 
look like. Way more than how you feel about them. It has everything to do with what you do to them or for them. Loving people is about being with them and for them in such a way that they are blessed. Are you with me? You're with them and for them in such a way that they are blessed. But yeah, Scott, my ex is a jerk. My boss is a jerk. You're not telling me or Jesus anything that he doesn't already know. But he still is looking for you, supernaturally endowed as a child of his, to love and bless jerks. Hard to be with, extra grace required people. Do good to them and bless them. And you go, well, what, what all does that look like to do good and to bless? Well, sometimes it looks like you share your resources with them, you give toward them, you uh, maybe do some work for them or some, some chores or whatever. You don't shun them, you don't hide from them, you don't see them coming and begin to go the other way. You intersect with them, you look them in the eye, and you, with a compassionate, soft, God-given kind of heart toward them, love and bless. Then he says, and pray for them. You say, pray what? Well, in the very next chapter, chapter 6, Lord's Prayer. Pray that for them. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed, Praised be your name. See, I'm going to pray for this person that they can hallow and praise the name of God. That they can have that kind of connection with God. I'm going to pray for them to get saved. I'm going to, get, I'm going to pray that God's life comes upon them. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm going to pray for God's will to happen in that person's life. For his kingdom to come upon them. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That's our daily needs, our daily provision. I'm going to pray that God meets His needs, her needs, every day. And forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses. I'm going to pray for God's forgiveness on their life. That they'll have a heart that will be repentant and receptive to God's forgiveness. I'm going to tell you what, friends. You pray for people that are taking extra grace out of your life, in that kind of way, it will change your heart. It will change your life. They may never change, but you will. And that's why God is pleased for us to be peacemakers, because it's part of His changing us so that our life becomes as such that we can give it back to Him as a worthwhile kind of gift. Now, let me be clear, peacemaking is not the same as peace achieving. Some people, you're not going to achieve peace with them. You will just be spending your life in ways that are trying to make for peace, but it doesn't happen. God knows that. He's tried to make peace with all of us, and it has not happened. So, let me say in the third place, there are some real consequences if this is not who you are 
And this is not how you carry your life out. Turn a couple of pages with me over to chapter 7 of Matthew. And in verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, what words? Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, you're blessed when you're a peacemaker because you'll be known as the son or daughter of God. I want you to love those that are hard to love. I want you to bless them. I want you to pray for them. Everyone who hears those words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Rain came down, streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So, friends, you're, you're building a life. You're one and only life. And the Scriptures admonish us from the beginning to the end, don't build it without God. And if you're building it with God, then He's going to be doing the work in you that gives expression in peacemaking, relationship-building kinds of ways. And if that's the kind of life you're building on the foundation of who He is, the rock, then when the storms come, you stand. You say, what kind of storms? Well, in our context today, relational storms. So that if someone you love in whom you have invested your heart turns away from you or rejects you or hurts you, it does not destroy your life. Oh, it'll hurt. It'll wound. Uh, you'll need to grieve and to mourn and get healing and help from God. But it will not destroy your life because you're on the rock. But on the other hand, some of these relational kinds of things can absolutely be the undoing of who you are and ruin and mess up your life for all the days of your life if your life is built on sand. You say, well, Scott, I know a lot of people that don't build their life on God and they've gone through all kinds of relational messes and they don't look like their life is falling apart. In fact, they look like they're kind of getting ahead. They got more money, they got more stuff than I got. I don't, you know, what are you talking about? Their life falling apart. Life is more than stuff. Life is the capacity to have deep and meaningful relationships. Love is this capacity to know God and to be with God and to live with God forever. So I don't care what kind of propped up situation they look like they've got. If they're building it on the sand and they're leaving wreckage in the wake of all their relationship travels... Friends, their life is a mess. Their life is falling apart. And there will be a day of reckoning when all of the facade will go away and they'll see what a mess they've got. And so the consequences of not being God's child, of not having this evidential thing working through us where we are peacemakers by nature, it's very costly. It costs everything. Let me wrap up with this. 
Let's look at the reality of being God's child as we see it in Matthew chapter 10. A couple more pages over. Picking up verse 34. Jesus said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring, bring peace to the earth. They go, oh, it's, now I'm confused. You've just spent all this time talking about how God has been a God of peace, works for peace, heaven's a place of peace, His people are, 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 are peacemakers. And, and what does this say? Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The reality, friends, is that God is a peaceful God. Peace-loving, peace-working, peacemaking God. But this world is a fallen place. And this world is at enmity with God. We are enemies. We are in rebellion. We have created an insurrection against God. And the rest of the New Testament tells us that outside of the reconciling work of Christ... We remain at odds and enemies to God. The reality is that peace won't happen with everyone everywhere. And when we have worked for peace, given ourselves to peace, prayed for peace, and peace didn't come, unless we were to compromise our stand with God, Jesus is very clear, you will never compromise your stand with me. So some of you are in work situations that you can pray, you can give yourself for peace, you can work for peace, you can be loving to the person that's hard to be with, and there's still not going to be any peace. So you still... Stand for and with God. It's the same way in your other kinds of relationships, social or recreational or neighborhood. It's the same way within your family. I became a Christ follower when I was 15 years of age. By the time I was 18, I began to sense that God was calling my life to serve Him as a pastor. And so when I said yes, as an 18-year-old, to following and serving God as a pastor. There were certain family members and friends slash acquaintances that thought that was nuts. You know, it was like, it's okay, Scott, to be religious or to go to church every now and then or try to be a good person and all that, but this thing about giving your whole entire life to ministry and being a pastor, that's like stupid. I mean, what, what are you thinking? Now, most of you in this room probably have some level of appreciation or, or re even respect for the work or the role of a pastor. But there's a lot of people that don't. 
that's kind of why when I'm out in other circles and people say, what do you do? I always cringe because, you know, it's not like, oh, wow, you're a pastor. It's like, really, you are? Okay. Just... <laughs> and I had some family situations around my little announcement that their response broke my heart. Just broke my heart. But I'm going to tell you this, and, and by the way, through the years, I've pretty much made peace with all of those people. And it's well with us. But even if it were not, I would not have been deterred from a lifetime of serving God and giving myself to Him through ministry. Because that was the call He put on me on how He wanted me to stand with Him. And so that's what I was going to do, no matter what kinds of enmity it put between me and whatever family members. That's the reality. So let me come back to that earlier question. How's that Christmas preparation, that gift-getting coming. I'm specifically talking about God. Are you building that life? Are you cooperating with the work of His Spirit in such a way that you have this transformed, God-breathed, Christ-like life that you're giving to Him? Let me just assume for a couple of minutes, and I know that everybody's not totally with me on this, but let me just assume that you are, and you were saying, okay, Scott, I'm with you. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be an evidential son or daughter of God by living my life relationally in these kinds of ways. How do I get at that? I'm going to make these four suggestions to you. First, you want to glorify God in the work of peacemaking. It's all about God. It's not about you. It's not about these other people. It's about Him. Paul exhorted us in 1 Corinthians, let everything you do be done to the glory of God. So that spouse, that child, that parent, that extended family member, that work colleague, that boss, that neighbor, that other social circle type friend, and whatever you're thinking about in terms of the relational challenge with them, are you willing to glorify God in whatever relational steps He prompts you to take? Secondly, will you get the log out of your own eye? You know, Jesus is the one that brought that to our attention you got this person that's got this like extra grace required behavior going on in their life, and you can just like, wow, I can sure see that in them. And God would have us to first look in the mirror and see what is true and broken about us. Will you get that log out of your eye before you go after the speck in his or her eye? This calls for humility. This calls for reality, where I don't pretend, I don't suppress, I don't get in states of denial about who I am and what my junk is. I got real junk. And somebody told me you do too. 
Let's don't be in denial about that. Let's be humble about that. Let's be in cooperation with God about that. Let's be in a state of transformation ourselves. And then in the third place, gently go about restoring whatever relationship challenges there are. Again, in Galatians 6.1, Paul exhorts us, Brothers, sisters, if you're able to see a fault in someone else, restore them gently. Or else you may be tempted and fall in the very same way that they are fallen. So maybe we're talking about a situation that you're observing with two people that it doesn't even involve you, but God stirred you about the, the rip that's in their relationship. And so you gently begin to confront and interact with that whole thing. Maybe it does involve you. And you gently bring up whatever the issue is, whatever the circumstance is. Put it on the table for the hope of making peace and reconciling. And then in the fourth place, Jesus contextualized it all to say, hey, don't, don't even bother coming into a worship gathering if you've got this relational disrepair stuff going on out there. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and worship and present your offerings to me. He didn't say, wait around till you feel like it. Go. Go. Have initiative. You take the first step. You call upon God for wisdom and for words. And you engage the situation. Listen, I'm not saying any of this lightly. In a church our size, I've been privileged to know a lot of the stuff that you wrestle with. I'm not saying this lightly. I know some of the relationship challenges some of you are in, and it's no small thing for you to take seriously what God's inviting us to engage in today. Some of it's under your own roof within your home. Some of you have some unbelievable things going on in your workplace. I mean, my heart is just so with you. Some of you have this thing going on with, you know, divorced circumstances and blended families. I, I, I get it. I really do. I grew up in that. Some of us have it right in this very room. With each other. Will we glorify Him? Humbly deal with our own junk. Gently take steps of reconciliation toward each other. With initiative, we'll go. Pray with me. So, Father, it's a very pregnant moment as you are seeking to give birth to new life within us. To new ways of walking with you and trusting you and 
taking risk in the name of Jesus. And Father, deeper than us, we want to. We want to give you a worthy Christmas gift in our lives that are being formed into Christ-likeness. So God, we confess we're not able. We don't have the power. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the courage to live peacemaking kinds of lives. But we know you do. And we're your child. We pray. Have your way with me. In Jesus' name, amen.